Welcome back to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show. You might notice a little bit of something different there with the intro music. Mad props to me, I guess, for changing up the intro music so easily, so quickly. I got a text last night, late last night, from my friend Luke Bergman. He said, hey, buddy, I think you might need to change your intro music, something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing probably, but I think you might need to change up your intro music, which without any further explanation needed, I knew exactly why he would say that. I've been running with the intro music that I created at the beginning of the year or late last year or whatever. I mean, it's it's been the same intro music basically for, for a year now, I guess, is what it really boils down to. But after a certain amount of listening, let's say 150 episodes plus, uh, yeah, it does get to be kind of not not bad, but um, variety is the spice of life. So this morning, I actually got up early. I saw his text from last night after I went to bed. We went to bed early last night, and I proceeded to scour the free music archive, fma.org, for some new tracks. And so we're going to try out uh, several. I think there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, plus one, two, three, four, five. Uh, Yeah, so actually exactly a dozen. I've got a dozen here that I have downloaded that I'm going to make about 30 seconds each. I'm just going to skip doing a voiceover for those and we'll just have the music just that'll be the cold opening welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet show this is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley Colorado I can say that now from memory and mix it up make that a little bit varied as well but I think you're gonna like them let me know which ones you like best or if any of them are just like oh that's awful Please don't use that one again. Let me know. And uh, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested to know what people think of the new intro style. But uh, this episode, I want to talk about The Life of Greece by Will Durant. Will Durant. Will Durant. Uh, Life of Greece. I just finished it up this week. 32 hours, 36 minutes audiobook from Blackstone Audio Incorporated. This is book two in the story of civilization. The story of civilization is this epic world history that Durant wrote uh, about a century ago, thereabouts. And I read the first book in the series, now the second book. First one was Our Oriental Heritage talking a lot about Mesopotamia and uh, the cradle of civilization, if you will. I didn't care for the first book quite as much. I liked The Life of Greece better. I feel like he was on firmer footing. Uh, He had better footing for the statements he was making, the editorializing he was doing of history in The Life of Greece. Uh, The next one, we'll see. I have a feeling that In Caesar and Christ, which is volume three of the story of civilization, 
he will go back to doing some of the things that I did not like in volume one. In volume one, it was like every opportunity Durant got to ascribe biblical stories, biblical literature to other influences, like for instance, the Babylonians, the Code of Hammurabi was given as the inspiration for the law of Moses. I didn't really appreciate that. I didn't like that. Uh, I think there's a certain anti-Christian, anti-Jewish bias inherent to scholarly theories that the Old Testament was inspired by other civilizations which were supposedly more advanced. Has it entered our minds to suppose that the Babylonians and all of these other groups actually were inspired by the official narrative from the Bible? Has it occurred to these folks that perhaps when you see these flood myths or creation myths in all of these different ancient cultures, and there's remarkable similarities between, is it possible in the minds of secular scholars that everybody's referring to the same actual event that happened? No, of course. Of course, that doesn't occur to them. They don't think in those terms. They don't think, well, something actually happened here that everybody's referring to. They think, well, somebody was the first one to play King of the Hill here, and then everybody else after tried to just modify that story to suit their own purposes. So the ancient you know, Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, they were trying to keep up with the big boys, and so they just take uh, mythology from everybody else, and then they adapt it into their particular religious framework. But I happen to believe that is quite the opposite, actually, that you have the biblical narrative being preserved by God's grace and other civilizations adapting where it's inconvenient, where they don't want to admit some of the things that are in God's word. They don't like some of the inconvenient truths of who we are in light of God having created us, having created the heavens and the earth in six days and resting on the seventh. Some of these facts are inconvenient to our biases, our sinful nature, to be quite honest. And so then each of these cultures, they take the morality, which is universal, which is written into reality by the Most High God, and they tweak it here and there. They tweak it to be more agreeable to their own tastes, to their own sensibilities, to their own judgment. And that's where you get the perversion. It's not that we forgot, except that we wanted to forget, or our forebearers wanted to forget, or they wanted us to modify these things. It's no different than in our day where what's called social justice is being written into the biblical narrative by the likes of Tim Keller as a way of trying to prove that God is all about this neo-Marxist revolution or evolution that leftists inside and outside the church would like to see happen. They'd like to realize that revolution, that evolution into what they think is going to be a more equitable, more fair, more just uh, society and community. When we do that kind of a thing, where we write in our own standard, 
we tweak, we modify, we play certain things down, we amplify other things. We are doing, I believe, what the ancients did in these diverse places, but just give it enough time, right? It's not evolution, it's devolution. It is a loss. It's not a gain when we modify the truth. You don't get a better truth, an enhanced truth. You get a lie when you modify the truth. And so I think in the life of Greece, there's less for Will Durant to mess up because it's all history and myth and there's not a lot of intersection, at least until the very end, where you have Jews and the Greek empire that Alexander the Great helped to um, create through his conquests from Macedon, from Macedonia. You, you don't have until the end of the life of Greece entry of Jews. And when the Jews come into the narrative again, lo and behold, there's Will Durant to do some more of what I really didn't like in volume one, which is trying to give credit for the truth of God's word to anybody but God. It isn't about the Jews getting credit. It's not about the Israelites getting credit. It's about God getting credit. This is God's word. And you have a preference to give credit for all the best features of it to anybody but God. You have a bias there because you love darkness, because your deeds are dark. It's, it's as simple as that. But <clears throat> as for the actual narrative, as for the actual story of Civilization, Volume 2, The Life of Greece, I am struck by the Greeks and their being drawn to understand truth better, especially as you have philosophers coming in and questioning the mythology of ancient Greece, questioning, well, how should we relate to the gods? And are they gods at all? They seem a lot like man. Are these the types of deities who deserve our worship? Well, of course, the philosophers who ask these questions of the ancient Greeks who are very religious are met oftentimes with death threats or death sentences or charges of blasphemy. How dare you question whether we should worship Aphrodite or Ares or Zeus? How dare you question these things? But it really does, I in, again, in my worldview and my belief, my conviction is that the ancient Greeks were strategically led and influenced and blessed and corrected by the Most High God, who the scriptures tell us sends his reins on the just and the unjust. They were led and guided, I believe, to have a certain position in the rise of the church. So Will Durant talks about the Hebrew Bible being written in Greek, translated into Greek. And how this Greek Bible is one of the tools that we have for understanding what the oldest uh, manuscripts actually said. So you get, for instance, under the 
Ptolemaic dynasty in ancient Egypt, which was one of the uh, factions or one of the uh, remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, his conquests uh, in Egypt. Ptolemy II Philadelphus, actually, from 285 to 247 BC is when he ruled and reigned. Uh, He instructs, requests that 70 Jewish scholars translate the Hebrew Torah into Greek. And he separates all of these guys out. They're all supposed to be working independently. And then once they have finished translating, he wants to compare all the translations. And that is what will be the, uh, the, the, what we refer to now as the Septuagint. Uh, if you look up the Wikipedia article for this, it's uh, Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, from the Latin Septuaginta, or 70, often abbreviated 70 in Roman numerals, LXX. It's the earliest extant Koine Greek translation of books from the Hebrew Bible, various biblical apocrypha, and deuterocanonical books. The first five books of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, were translated in the mid-third century BC. The remaining books of the Greek Old Testament are presumably translations of the second century BC. The full title in ancient Greek is the translation of the 70. And I won't read for you what that sounds like in Greek because I don't read Greek, but uh, derives from the story that I was just telling you. The story recorded in the letter of Aristeus that the Hebrew Torah was translated into Greek at the request of Ptolemy II Philadelphus Scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who independently produced identical translations. So six scholars, I should say. Six scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The miraculous character of the Aristeus legend might indicate the esteem and disdain in which the translation was held at the time. Greek translations of Hebrew scriptures were in circulation among the Alexandrian Jews. Egyptian papyri from the period have led most scholars to view as probable Aristeus's dating of the translation of the Pentateuch to the 3rd century BC. Whatever share the Ptolemaic court may have had in the translation, it satisfied a need felt by the Jewish community in whom the knowledge of Hebrew was waning. However, the authenticity of Aristeus's letter has been questioned, of course, always. Quote, it was the English monk Humphrey Hody, 1684, who was able to show convincingly that the letter was not by a contemporary of Philadelphus. End quote. Okay. So, uh, Greek scriptures were in wide use during the Second Temple period because few people could read Hebrew at the time. The text of the Greek Old Testament is quoted more often than the original Hebrew Bible text in the Greek New Testament, particularly in the Pauline epistles by the Apostolic Fathers and later by the Greek Church Fathers. Modern critical editions of the Greek Old Testament are based on the codices Alexandrinus Sinat. Uh, Sinaiticus must be pertaining to Sinai and Vaticanus these 4th and 5th century Greek Old Testament manuscripts have different lengths the Codex Alexandrinus for example contains all four books of the Maccabees the Codex Sinaiticus Sinaiticus contains one and four Maccabees and the Codex Vaticanus contains none of the four books so once you get to this piece here Uh, in the very end of The Story of Civilization, Volume 2, The Life of Greece, 
Durant starts ascribing dates to when certain Old Testament Hebrew uh, books were written, as he alleges, as he uh, believes or is told by scholars who are, are believing this stuff. Uh, I would say making it up, but we'll leave that for uh, another day. But you take Ecclesiastes, for instance, and he tells his readers that it was written much, much later. Ecclesiasticus was written much, much later than Solomon. And it was written by, according to his narrative, his theory, Jews who wanted to be able to keep up with the Greeks, where philosophy was concerned. They were feeling a little bit insecure, like these Greeks are more sophisticated than we are, they're more intelligent, more erudite, more philosophical, and so we have to have our own philosophy. And so we're going to just make up some stuff and we're going to ascribe it to wise King Solomon. We're going to make up some of these books of the Old Testament as a way of trying to achieve parity culturally. Uh, I really don't like that theory and I don't think there's much to recommend it uh, personally except a modern bias, which is, as I said at the top of this episode, opposed to the Bible being God's inspired word, God's revealed word. We have a bias against that because once you start to take the Bible as God's word, then where does it stop, right? Next thing you know, you have to believe it and you have to submit yourself to God. You have to honor God. You have to have a fear of the Lord. You have to abide by his word. And that means abiding by the doctrines of grace. That means abiding by everything that Jesus commanded. Because it isn't just the Old Testament. If the Old Testament is true, then the New Testament is true. Because the Old Testament testifies to Christ in the New Testament. But if you start believing that the Old Testament is what it purports to be, what it claims to be, well then you all of a sudden are bound. And people don't want to be bound. They want to be foolish and they want their foolish hearts to be darkened and so they prefer darkness. They think themselves wise. Will Durant apparently thought himself very wise and he represents a a kind of scholarship which has its roots in an anti-clericalism that became atheism, that became the modern secular approach to perceiving history, perceiving our current circumstance, thinking about the future. And it's sad. Quite frankly, it's sad. It, It disheartens me to see the Bible relegated to some very, very, I mean, not even secondary status. I mean, to say that the Jews were just trying to keep up with the Joneses is just, uh, that's pathetic. You know, if that were true, if that were true, it would be, uh, it, it would be the, the height of folly to put any stock whatsoever in the Bible. And of course, that's what the folks who have a secular academic uh, approach to the Bible, uh, that's what they believe. You know, so if you start carrying on about the Bible being God's revealed word and us needing to honor God and let's let's abide by what's in here, they say, well, okay, that's fine 
as far as the morality goes. The morality is not half bad in some places. The teaching of Jesus was pretty good in, in most regards. And if you follow what it is that Jesus says, you'll be a good person, right? And so we want to keep it around in some form or fashion, but we don't actually believe it. The intelligentsia, the academic elites, we don't believe it. It's just some of us think that it would be useful for the common, ignorant, superstitious people to believe this. And so we'll leave that to them because it, it makes them you know, more decent people usually, more often than not, when they, when they really latch hold of it. Some of the Old Testament stuff, we're not crazy about not eating shellfish. We can't get with that. Uh, not planting two different crops in the same field. We can't get with that. Not sewing a, a, a garment out of two different types of fabric. We, we can't get with that. Uh, stoning adulterers and homosexuals and, and whatnot like that. Um, no, absolutely not. That has no business in our conception of justice. Uh, but, you know, if you watch a, 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 a talk between Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, uh, moderated by Douglas Murray, this is from a few years ago, uh, they have this back and forth, kind of a debate, not really a debate per se, over God and over religion and over do we need religion in order to be good people. And Sam Harris, of course, maintains being the atheist that he is, we don't need religion. In fact, religion makes people less moral, less good. And so we need to get rid of religion. Well, that's a religious position to take, I'm sorry to say. Just because there's a a veneer of godlessness to it does not mean that there's no God in atheism. It just means that your God is something other than what the ancients would have called a God. But it's a God by any other name, and it smells as rotten. And so Sam Harris, his God is science. His God is reason. And in this supreme uh, anthropomorphic concept of science, he places all of his trust. It's the closest thing we've got to God, and so let's worship. Let's make everything... Uh, you know, subjected to reason and to science. If I'm not satisfied in my own mind that what you're saying is true, well, then I just reject it. Well, then does that make you evil? Does that make me evil? Like, there's no morality. It's it's a mirage for you to be saying we don't need religion in order for people to be good because your definition of what is or is not good is is vacuous. And nature abhors a vacuum. And so something will fill the vacuum. And to Douglas Murray's credit, he catches on to this and says he's very concerned about Western civilization having other non-Judeo-Christian ethics fill that vacuum, which we're seeing. We've been seeing that for decades in Europe where Christianity has been rejected wholesale and quote-unquote Asiatics but really Middle Easterners, Muslims, have been imported in mass to make up for labor shortages. And as they've been imported, and they don't give up on their ethic, their morality, their worldview, their religion, they are trying to fill that vacuum created by the rejection of Christianity with Islam. And, and so they're taking over Europe with Islam, and they want to enforce Sharia law to where women who go out without a male chaperone, their faces uncovered, dressed as 
the conservative cleric in your neighborhood supposes immodestly, they're fair game for any gang of Muslim men to harass, to rape, to murder, to do whatever they will with. If you are drinking alcohol and they don't like it and they hit a certain critical mass in your neighborhood, well, then they're just going to decide that you need to no longer drink alcohol or else. And so Douglas Murray points out that, yes, and I am very concerned. The dreams we dream are still Christian dreams. As he says at one point, he's quoting someone else. I don't remember exactly who. But the dreams we dream are still Christian dreams in the West because Western civilization is not just built on the Greeks and the Romans. It's built on the Hebrew and Greek, as I just pointed out, Old Testament, and the Christian New Testament. Western civilization cannot be understood apart from the influence of the Bible on our thinking about ourselves, on our thinking about one another, on our thinking about marriage and family and parenting and government and war and peace and economics, the meaning of life, who God is, where we're going, why we're here, what we should be about, for his part, Jordan Peterson, I feel like is either trying too hard to fit in with Sam Harris and Douglas Murray and all of these intellectuals who buy his books and love what it is that he's trying to do and they see in Jordan Peterson a kind of prophet calling us to repentance for our godlessness, for our materialism, for our immorality, amorality. And for Jordan Peterson's part, I it, it seems like to me he's either pretending to be more neutral in these things in his heart of hearts than he really is when he's on the stage with Douglas Murray and Sam Harris, or in his books and in his other speaking engagements, he's pretending to be more favorable to the Judeo-Christian worldview than he actually is. You know, it's, it's one of the two, and it could very well be the latter. Uh, disappointing as though as that would be, uh, but but again, going back to Will Durant's "The Life of Greece" and before that, our Oriental heritage, this very clinical, sanitized, uh, self-impressed, chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would put it, concludes that modern man, with all of his technological wherewithal, is able to peel back the layers of the onion into our ancient past and see man for who he is, except we perceive ancient man through the lens of a very complicated and not at all foregone conclusion type of modern and postmodern philosophy. Check out Carl R. Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and then take that with what C.S. Lewis says about chronological snobbery, where we assume, because of our evolutionary framework, we assume very presumptuously, very self-servingly, but also very foolishly, that we are superior to all who came before us. And we study them. When we study their works and we study evidence in the archaeological record, in the historical record about the ancients, our ancient ancestors, we presume an innate superiority 
to those people because, well, for one, we're alive and they're dead. And for another thing, we know so much more than they did. Except what if? What if we don't know so much more than they did? What if part of the reason why oral tradition was so prevalent in ancient societies is because their brains worked better, because their minds could remember things for a lot longer? What if the reason why a lot of these things weren't written down until 2,500 years ago? I mean, aside from things being lost because just over time and wars and natural disasters and migrations and et cetera, et cetera, things just fall apart. You know, the library of Alexandria equivalent in various places is set fire to either on purpose or accidentally. Books are burned as regimes change and they're trying to change the official narrative to make themselves the beginning instead of their predecessors who they displaced. You know, that kind of thing happens and you lose records and and yada, yada, yada. But besides that, when civilization seems to just burst onto the scene about the same time, the modern, godless, secular, self-impressed man presumes that something happened, but we don't know what. All the while never letting go of this framework, this evolutionary framework which isn't even a new idea, actually. I mean, if you read the life of Greece, you read about Democritus supposing that the whole universe is made out of atoms and that something very much akin to the theory of evolution by natural selection, which Charles Darwin popularized, is how all life on earth came to be, how all the diversity of life came to be. Tiny little changes and adaptations over a long, long period of time. That's how everything came to be. Democritus came up with a philosophical explanation which was compatible with his agenda, with his preferences. And other men who shared those preferences and thought, well, that's good enough for me, latched on to it. And then when you fast forward to the 19th century, The Industrial Revolution has upset the apple court economically, and now you've got a new moneyed class that wants the political power and not just the economic power. I don't have to have huge tracts of land and ancient titles because hundreds of years ago, my ancestors aided the king in his time of need. I can have this small plot of land that I was able to buy being of low birth and I could build a factory there and I can invent machines or acquire some machines to mass produce goods to generate wealth. I can trade across the oceans with other countries and generate a fortune. And now that I've got this money, now I want the political power. And lo and behold, here's this very old idea, which has been repackaged in on the origin of species. And voila, one thing leads to another leads to another. And the Western man elevating reason, like Sam Harris does, elevating reason to the place of chief importance, like the French Revolution did. Let's convert our grandest cathedral into a temple to reason. We'll create a cult to this goddess of reason. 
It's just a golden calf. It's, it's no new things under the sun like Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. There is no new thing under the sun. And even Will Durant, at the end of the story of civilization, claiming that Ecclesiastes was written to try and keep up with the Greeks, it's a self-serving lie, plain and simple. It's a self-serving lie to say the Greeks were trying to do this before anybody else, and they got it from the Egyptians, and they got it from, from these other godless empires. And we know that because these other empires left more in the archaeological record further back. But the Bible, no. The Bible was the new kid trying to keep up with the big boys, trying to catch up with the big boys, insecure, trying to say, hey, I can play this too. But again, what if that's all not true? What if the better explanation is that God really did create the heavens and the earth in six days and rest on the seventh? And then he preserves the official account through an unbroken line of his chosen people and that this is why he chooses the Jews This is why he chooses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why he leads and he guides and he guards and he corrects and he blesses the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, until the Messiah comes. Because that was the goal from the very beginning, was to bless all nations through his chosen people by bringing the Messiah to this chosen people. And what if, even in the case of Greece and then Rome, these empires of godless people who did not worship him as God, they would erect an altar to an unknown God as Paul encountered on Mars Hill, but they didn't worship and regard God and honor God as God. Some of them had maybe perhaps some inkling that all of this stuff, all of these togas and human sacrifices and everything, everything that we're doing to worship the Greek pantheon, It's all nonsense. It doesn't even make sense. It's getting in the way of us understanding reality as it is. God used the Greeks to create a playing field on which Christianity could build. And the Greeks, in turn, inspired the Romans, and God used the Romans. When you think about the evangelistic efforts of early first century Christians under the Pax Romana. I'll be interested to find out if Will Durant picks up on that, and I'll bet you he picks up on that and he gets it inverted. He gets it exactly backwards. The only reason why, as Nietzsche would say, this slave's religion prospered is because the Greeks and the Romans were so great. And here are these parasites, these Jews and these Christians. They're like so many cowbirds on a wildebeest. But God made the cowbirds and the wildebeest both. And he uses the weak and foolish things of the world to shame the strong and the wise. Because at the end of the day, God gets the glory. God gets all of the kudos. And he distributes to his people in the end what kudos are due. But I got to leave it there. It's a Sunday morning. 
Today is October 3rd. I have music practice before too long here. I need to go get a shower, change my clothes, wash my face, comb my hair, print off my music for this morning. We're doing some hymns this morning. And I did not print off my music yesterday morning when we practiced the first time. And then the printer was missing at church. I don't know if it broke. Somebody took it to get repaired or what, but uh, I need to print off my music before we go. So I'm going to leave it there. Let me know what you think of the intro music. I'll be rolling out about a dozen. And I think if I rotate them, you know, every episode, by the time one comes back again in the queue, it'll be fresh again and you won't even notice. But uh, let me know if any of them are just atrocious, awful, horrible, no good, rotten. And uh, I'll, I'll think about removing them from the queue. But thanks to Luke Bergman for that piece of advice, that piece of feedback. Thank you to everybody for listening. As always, until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.